A baby is born deformed. A young man is killed in a car crash. Your closest friend suffers the ravages of cancer. You face a long and lonely bereavement. Why? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Is it that God is punishing people for their sins? If you're dishonest or cheat on your wife, should you expect to get sick? Certainly there are those who will tell you that illness or calamity is indeed punishment sent from God. We saw that with certain religious leaders' response to AIDS years ago. We saw that after 9-11 and again after the 2004 tsunami. Whether from Buddhist or Hindu perspectives of karma or a Christian fundamentalist idea of judgment, there have always been those who are quick to ascribe blame or point the finger or use their religious credentials to tell us that they know why. Of course, common sense tells us that there are situations where there clearly is a connection between one person's wrongdoing and another's suffering, like with the crack baby or the rape victim. Yet so often, there are no obvious explanations for suffering. As much as some of you may not like to hear me say this, we have to live with the fact that in answer to many of the questions in life, we simply don't have the answers. How can a loving God possibly allow, you can fill in the blank, I don't know. If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why do bad things happen? I cannot give you a wholly satisfactory answer to that question. And yet, that said, the very questions give us a hint that suffering is not the way things are meant to be, which itself can point us to God, who not only created the world good, but who also came to restore that which is broken. Well, this is not, in fact, going to be a full-blown sermon on suffering, but it is the background to our passage this morning from that wonderful account in John's Gospel with the man born blind and the questions that arise as to why. And this passage goes beyond the disciples' question and it introduces really another question. In the face of all our why questions, how well do we see? Or in other words, whether or not we ever get satisfactory answers to why we are plagued with suffering, can we nevertheless still have confidence in God? This account of Jesus healing the man born blind is all about seeing and knowing and understanding. This passage won't answer all our why questions. But I believe it can enable us to see more clearly, love more dearly, and follow more nearly the one who came to be the light of the world. A hundred years ago, Archbishop William Temple said of this passage, the man blind from birth is every man, for it is a part of that sin of the world which the Lamb of God beareth away, that by nature we are blind until our eyes are opened by Christ, the light of the world.
So this morning, I want us to take a look at this narrative through the eyes of the various people involved. The reactions of the people who witnessed or heard about this healing miracle of Jesus tell us a lot about spiritual blindness, which, as we will see, afflicts people in many different ways, some subtle and some not so subtle. First, there are, of course, the disciples. The gospel reading began with Jesus walking along with his disciples, and they see a man blind from birth. The disciples, it seems, were more concerned with their philosophical and theological questions than they were with the man himself. Indeed, they don't seem bothered about the man at all. What they're concerned about is, why was he blind? Who had sinned, this man or his parents? For in their minds, and in the minds of many people in that day, people suffered physical conditions like blindness as a direct punishment from God for sin. But they were puzzled. How could this man who'd been born blind have sinned? I mean, does that, does that mean he somehow sinned before he was born? Or, or was this because of the sin of his parents? What's going on here? Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of this passage, puts Jesus' response to the disciples like this. You're asking the wrong questions. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. I wonder how often we do that. Ask the wrong questions instead of looking for what God can do. How do you react when you encounter someone who's suffering? Is our first response to look for how God may be at work in that situation? Do we have compassion like Jesus did? Do we ask what we can do or how we can help? Or do we get sidetracked looking for someone to blame? The truth is we will encounter numerous situations where we don't have easy answers, where, frankly, we may not have any answers. What then? Well, what we can do then is, with God's help, shine the light of God's love into the darkness, into the brokenness, into the grief, into the pain, into the loneliness, into the failure. Surely that's our task, to be people who, by our words and presence and actions, bring God's love and grace into the midst of the heartache and the suffering that we encounter. But sadly, the disciples were somehow blinded by a lack of compassion. They were blind to the needs of the man who was in front of their very eyes. Well, that's the disciples. The next uh, group we encounter are the neighbors. What did they make of all of this? We might have expected that this miraculous healing would have had a, a profound effect on them. After all, presumably, they had seen this man for years, growing up together in the same town. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it, it's him. Others were saying, no, it's someone like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? They were just so skeptical. They were so disbelieving. And the neighbors are 
busy arguing among themselves, talking about him, while the man himself is right there in front of him. Excuse me, hello, it's me, I'm right here, I can see you. He could indeed. The problem was, they couldn't see, or wouldn't. Why were they so blind to what had happened? You know, I wonder it's because actually they'd never seen him. He was just that blind beggar in the corner. They had no time for him. And now they don't quite know what to do with it all. They don't know how to respond. You know, no one ever speaks this fellow's name. I don't think they knew it. It was as if he'd simply become part of the background, someone who was not worthy of their recognition or concern. Perhaps if the neighbors in our gospel reading this today had seen the man as more than some nameless beggar, they might have seen too the joy on his face and the sense of wonder at what had happened. Well, likewise today, if we're unconcerned for those around us, if we're unconcerned for what God is doing all over the place, we will miss out on so many opportunities. Are there people we see week by week, or maybe don't see, whom we've given up on as hopeless cases? Well, the God we worship, the Savior we follow, is the God of hopeless cases and lost causes. He is the Lord of life, the God of miracles. I think one of the ways that sometimes we miss out on what God has done and is doing is that, frankly, our expectations are just so low. Let us ask God to help us to see as he sees and do the work that God sends us to do in Jesus' name. Okay, so we've looked at the disciples. We've looked at the neighbors. There's another reaction, that of his parents. Verse 18, the Jews didn't believe that he'd been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man um, and they asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answer, Well, we know that this is our son, and we know that he was born blind, uh, but we don't know how he sees now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Uh, Ask him, he's of age. What a cop-out. I mean, it's actually very sad. Their their form of spiritual blindness, because if you haven't cottoned on already, basically everybody here is blind except the blind man. Um, but, but their blindness is, I think, driven by fear. You know, they had this fantastic opportunity to stand with their son on the greatest day of his life. Surely they would have been falling down on their knees, praising God for what had happened. Surely they would have rejoiced and identified with their son. But they don't do that. You'd think... You'd think they'd have had a party. You'd think they would be telling anyone who would listen what had happened and who had done it. Don't give me this rubbish that they didn't know. Of course they knew. Everybody else in the town seemed to know. It's a tragic situation because it actually looks as if they didn't love their son that much and they didn't love God that much. The man's parents, who could see perfectly well physically, remained blind spiritually. And in their blindness, they withdraw from their son because they are afraid of the social consequences 
of countering the Pharisees. I wonder, are we ever blind in that way, like the man's parents? You see, celebrating what God is doing, proclaiming his goodness, telling of his work in our lives, may contradict the skepticism of the world and may result in you being sidelined as being a bit weird. Are there times when we choose to do what is acceptable to the world and keep quiet rather than speak of God's goodness? Do we love the world's approval more than God's? Are we ever blind like the parents of the man whom Jesus healed? Well, the fourth group of people in this story who could not see was, of course, the Pharisees. And they were blinded by their legalism, their self-love, and their pride. They refused to listen to anyone's voice except their own. And it was their arrogance that kept them from Christ. They had no interest in the man who was healed. Whereas to Jesus, this man was someone who needed help. To the Pharisees, he was someone to be used. Someone who might be useful to them as a witness against Jesus, whom, of course, they were trying to trap once more. This time on the grounds that he'd broken one of their uh, additional rules about the Sabbath. And in all of their arrogance and power and prestige, the Pharisees were willfully blind to what God was doing. There are none so blind as those who will not see. Or as Jesus puts it, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Or in other words, no one is quite so blind as those who are so sure that they have got it all together and they can see very clearly, thank you very much. And Jesus makes it clear that unless we are willing to admit our own blindness, our own sinfulness, our own sin, then we will remain in that place of guilt and separateness. The religious leaders were certain that God could not possibly have done a miracle through someone who had broken one of the Sabbath rules. Out of the question. So the miracle couldn't have happened. Now, today, people don't dismiss miracles on the say-so of religious leaders. The power of the Pharisees is perhaps today more analogous to the power of the scientists who tell us that supernatural doesn't exist. So no matter what the evidence, miracles don't happen. They just don't. They can't. So if you tell me about one, it's not true, right? But when the Pharisees cross-examine the man born blind in verse 24, it seems pretty clear that their minds are made up and they're not interested in the facts. Give glory to God, they say, which is shorthand for submit to us, we're right, you're wrong. And then they continue, speaking of Jesus, we know that he's a sinner. Really? They know that? And so the man responds, I don't know whether he's a sinner, but what I do know is that I was blind, now I can see. You know, his, his response is not unlike that of an English coal miner who came to faith in the 18th century Wesleyan revival. One lunchtime, some colleagues of the miner were mercilessly teasing him for his newfound Christian faith. They said, you don't really believe that Jesus turned water into wine, do you? And, and the man replied, 
I don't really know if Jesus actually turned water into wine. I wasn't there. But I do know one thing. In my house, Jesus turned beer into furniture. The only person in today's gospel narrative who saw clearly was, of course, the man who was blind. And as the story progresses, we we see him not only receiving his physical sight, but we also see his spiritual sight increasing and becoming clearer. In verse 10, in response to the questioning of his neighbors, the man describes Jesus as the man called Jesus. And then a bit later on, in response to the Pharisees, he describes Jesus in verse 17 as a prophet. But by the end of the story... After Jesus has sought him out and told him plainly who he is, he says in verse 38, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And there are many people here, I suspect, who could testify to a similar increasing of their understanding of God. And for most, it comes not after a miraculous healing. And it may be a very gradual process. Maybe you first encountered Christ as a good man called Jesus. But then later you came to see him as being more than that, something of a prophet. But only when we see him as Lord and Savior and we fall at his feet in worship will we ever see in the way that the man born blind came to see. Well, we're nearly done. But the final reaction to this healing miracle is, of course, yours. How do you react? How well can you see? The disciples were blinded by their philosophical questions and lack of compassion. The neighbors were blinded by their disbelief and skepticism. The parents were blinded by their fear and the Pharisees by their pride. What other things that make it hard for you to see God. Jesus came into the world to give sight to the blind, to give hope to the hopeless, to give love to the loveless, and to give eternal life to all who would receive it. The key to seeing and knowing and understanding is paradoxically in realizing our own blindness. For then, we are much more likely to be open to receive the sight that Jesus longs to give. Now, of course, even then, it is possible, even if we know that we're messed up, even if we know something of God, it is possible for us to resist his work in our lives. The blind man knew he was blind. He knew he needed help. Jesus saw the blind man. He knew the need. He made the mud with his spit. He touched his unseeing eyes. But he asked the man to do one thing. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. When he did that, he came back able to see. So I wonder, what is God saying to you this morning through this passage? Is he illuminating some place in your life where you've been blind? Can you see it? I don't know what it is, but but you will. And if so, what is he asking you to do in response today? Is he asking you to go from here and trust him? 
maybe with something seemingly trivial like washing in the pool of Siloam. If we will bring our blind spots, our weaknesses, our failures, or our strengths, our achievements, if we will bring all of whom we are, then, by God's grace, Jesus enables us to receive sight, the light and life that only he can give. And it's that light that he calls us to shine in the darkness. Oh, Lord Jesus, come again and be our healer. Show us your mercy. Lighten our darkness. Will you pray with me? Oh, God, give us eyes to see what you're doing. Help us to see our own blindness, our own inability to fix ourselves or heal ourselves. Open our hearts and minds to receive what you want to give. Make our wills malleable to do what you would have us do, so that, beginning with us, those who are blind may receive sight, and that those who are lost may be found. And in all things, Lord God, may you be worshipped and glorified. Amen.